This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Ah, g'day. Uh, it's six minutes past 12. My name is Mel Fulton. You are listening to Literati Glitterati, Triple R's book show. Um, it's a delight to be here. I am broadcasting to you live from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people and I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and, of course, to Bunjil, to the great creative spirit. Um, we've got a great show coming up for you today. I always say that, but I always mean it. Uh, Madeleine Lucas, author of the delightful debut coming-of-age novel, Thirst for Salt, is in the studio. She's going to be chatting with us very shortly. We've also got Jane Finemore, pr- uh, Program Director for Queenscliff, Queenscliff Literary Festival, coming in to have a chat about the festival which launches this weekend and runs uh, until the 28th of May, so over three weekends. That's the Queenscliff Literary Festival. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. I am delighted to introduce our first guest for this morning. It's Madeleine Lucas, author of the beautiful coming-of-age novel Thirst for Salt. Welcome to the show, Madeleine. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Oh, we are absolutely delighted. Uh, for people who are listening, Madeleine's book just came out uh, last month. Um, it's... And it, it's a story of a woman who is reflecting on the year that she turned 24. Um, she's away on a beach holiday with her mother and she falls in love with a charming and sort of enigmatic man named Jude who's a furniture restorer, restorer who's 18 years her senior. And they fall in love. They have this kind of very intense uh, formative romance and we sort of follow um, the unnamed protagonist throughout this journey and about her journey with Jude and also her journey uh, with, with her mother and with her family and, and with her own sort of understanding of, of what she wants uh, from her life and what she wants in her romantic life as well. It's, it's a lovely story and I'm, I'm really happy to have you here to talk about it. Thank you so much. Um, so we kicked off the um, the show there with the Stone Roses with "I Want to Be Adored," and the reason why the reason why we popped that one on is it's kind of a formative song for our protagonist. Um, there's this great scene in the book where um, the song comes on. It's on, it's on in her share house, um, and her boyfriend Jude at the time reflects that he remembers the song being played on the radio, and and the protagonist says, "Oh, I think I remember it from the from the womb. I think my mother. <laughs> I think my mother played it." Um, and I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you about is that sort of dynamic um, that you explore and that you do so well through music about the age differences between between these characters and 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 what that what that means for them and what that means for how their relationship kind of progresses. Yeah, it's such a great question, and I'm so glad we kicked off with the Stone Roses because I love that song, and honestly, I really do associate it with the share houses of my twenties. I feel like it kind of came back around that time mm-hmm. um, and I think that's part of an age gap dynamic um, whether between lovers or even between siblings I was just talking about this the other day um, like my narrator I have a much two much younger half brothers actually and with my youngest of the two brothers he's 15 years younger than me and 
in that time, all the things that I loved in my childhood kind of came back into fashion when he was a child. So, you know, this is a few years ago now, but he was like playing Game Boys and collecting Pokemon cards and things like that. And um, it didn't really occur to me that until you asked that question this morning, um, how that works in the book as well about this idea of like this generation gap and certain things coming back into fashion and how the narrator and Jude could have very different associations with the same song. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the kind of almost the, the mysticism or the myth or something that exists within that as well, you mm-hmm. know, somebody who remembers the song being played on the radio and what you're able to kind of project onto that, that unknowable space, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, really interesting. Um, You're visiting us from where you live in New York, um, (laughs) which is a wonderful thing. I feel like I wanted to ask you about the experience of writing the book and if indeed you wrote it while you were over there because Mm -hmm. it's such an Australian-feeling book, the expansiveness. It's set in a small town on the coast. Um, You know, it's quite... Uh, I feel like you can smell it. You've been to these towns. You've, you know, you've had fish and chips from the fish and chip shop there. <laughs> um, how did you kind of conceive of that or how did you go about writing it while you were living in a very different place? I think a lot of it was the power of homesickness, honestly. I didn't write that much about Australia really until I moved to New York. Um, you know, I was born in Melbourne. I grew up in Sydney. Um, but like a lot of young Australians, I think I was very hungry for experience in the wider world. Um, So when I started writing, I was more interested in writing about my experiences traveling or going overseas. Um, And maybe I thought that was like part of proving something about myself or, I don't know, achieving some kind of worldliness. And then when I moved to New York and I found myself, you know, I was doing a a master's uh, in creative writing over there and I found myself in this room full of people who had such different experiences to me and such different stories. And it really felt like the only story I could tell was a story about Australia. That was the only place that I knew about with any real authority. Um, And it was a bit of a good trick too, because no one could really in that room say like, actually, you got this wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that distance actually turned out to be really generative. Um, And I don't know that I would have been inspired to recall those landscapes with that same specificity if I wasn't also trying to kind of write my way back there. Yeah, wow. It's a beautiful answer. Um, And how did kind of, um, you know, I've seen on the book, it's been endorsed by, you know, people like Leslie Jameson, like big time sort of American writers. How has their, um, yeah, what has the American audience response sort of been to the book? It's been really wonderful and surprising. Um, I mean, Leslie was a professor of mine, so I'm really lucky that uh, she was an early champion of the book and she's such an overwhelmingly kind and generous person and I'm definitely not the only one who would say that. Um, but it was interesting and because it came out in America first, I kind of got those reactions and then I sort of became weirdly nervous about it coming out in Australia. Like, will people from home, (laughs) will it resonate with them? Like, what if I've gotten things wrong, you know? Um, So it was really lovely and, you know, kind of also overwhelming um, seeing the book like in the New York Times, which was bigger than I ever anticipated and, and felt a lot for me, you know, having gone to New York, like a lot of people, like the cliche of dreaming of becoming a writer. Um, but then it, yeah, it did make me nervous, like, oh, will people back home relate to it in the same way? Um, 
you know, I've been living in New York for eight years now. Mm. So it's really exciting to be back and to be talking about the book with other Australians. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Something I do want to ask you about, you had a great essay published in The Guardian a little while ago, which sort of reflected on um, your own childhood and your own family and your... um, your relationship with your parents and their kind of um, the expansive quality that their relationship mm-hmm. has taken on since they separated when you were very young. You mentioned before that you've got much younger brothers, mm-hmm. you've got, uh, you know, step parents and other siblings. Um, I thought that that was fascinating and I wanted to ask you, you know, what you think, <laughs> big question, but what you think makes for a sort of successful love because mm-hmm. I think that the characters in your in your book are really reaching for that mm-hmm. you know yeah it's it's a great question a big question and I think it's a question maybe that the book is trying to ask more than answer in some ways um, but I hope that what people take from it and and take from that essay as well thank you for mentioning it is that there are so many different ways to love and to love each other And that was partly why in Thirst for Salt, even though there is a romance at its core, I really wanted to show um, other kinds of love in the novel as well, like the kind of close, complicated bond between mother and daughter, those maternal feelings you can have towards much younger siblings, um, also the love between a human and a dog, (laughs) which is, you know, one of the most profound loves that I've definitely experienced, Um, the way that we love animals who can't communicate with us in the same language. Um, so I wanted the novel to hold all those different ways of loving and not necessarily to say that one is more important or more valuable than another. Yeah. Wow. That's a lovely answer. And indeed the importance I think is asking, is asking the question. You spend your whole life trying to answer questions like that. Exactly. Um, on that note, I think we might go to another track. This is a song by Karen Dalton. Um, and I picked it out because, um, there's a great scene when your character is over at Jude's place and he's cooking, he's cooking a fish and <laughs> he tells her that she's in charge of the music and she kind of riffles through his collection and pulls out all of these great records and, and one of them is a Karen Dalton one. Um, this one is Something on Your Mind. Triple R. Author Madeleine Lucas is joining us in the studio talking about her book Thirst for Salt, but we were just very excitedly off mic um, <laughs> talking about the music that we discovered in our 20s and that exciting kind of, uh, how would you put it, that feeling of, of knowing there's so much ahead of you and that there are these other people who can show you the way and mm-hmm. share their collections with you. Can you tell us a bit about how your music collection and how your taste was sort of shaped? Yeah, wow, it's such a good question. I mean, you know, I grew up, with a musician father. So I was lucky to be really immersed in music from, you know, literally the day that I was born. Um, But there is something about that time of your life where you're making those discoveries for yourself for the first time. And, you know, we were just chatting before about, um, I think part of the appeal of people with more experience than you, part of the yeah, maybe the appeal of age gap relationships or uh, friendships even is that they can introduce you to this world of knowledge that you haven't really had a chance um, to access yet. And, you know, that can be part of any relationship, um, but I think it's especially pronounced when there is this kind of difference of experience. And that can be so exciting and so intoxicating as well. I want to ask you about 
capturing the awkwardness of one's 20s. I mean, there's this <laughs> fantastic moment where your your character, you know, she's she's from Sydney and she's she's moved to this small coastal town and she's wearing like a lace slip dress <laughs> and kind of trying to trying to negotiate the the waves as she's as she's walking along and at different times she's, you know, smoking in the bath and and reading Duras and <laughs> um you know, dousing herself in lilac perfume before she goes to bed and I read it and was like I felt so seen and also just so embarrassed and sorry for myself um what was it like to live in that in that world and and write those write those things oh thank you for saying that I think we had a similar kind of 20s um and I think there is you know really a performative aspect to finding your own identity especially I think you know maybe it's partly um an Australian thing as well, like trying to forge this creative identity for yourself um, in these, you know, cosmopolitan cities like Sydney, but they pale in comparison to the size of like London or New York. Um, And so maybe sometimes we go extra hard Mm. (laughs) Um, with our kind of co-opting of of certain um, affectations. Um, But now I've totally lost track of what your question was. Oh, what it was like to inhabit that time again. Yeah. it was, you know what, it was actually really lovely. I think I felt very nostalgic for that moment in my life, um, living in share houses, which now feels like such a brief moment in time. Um, and it was a sort of particular energy, I feel like, in, in Sydney. So I would have been 24 in 2014. And, you know, we had obviously social media, but it feels different. I don't know. There was there was a kind of brief moment before Instagram was everything. Um, and so I think I, I feel a lot of tenderness for myself and for my friends at that time. I think of my friends as being such a big part of um, those aspects of the novel too. Yeah. We battled, didn't we, before Instagram? <laughs> we had to fight for our taste and we had to tell everyone about it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it also was like um, it was less public in mm. a way. You know, it was something that you were working out between you and yourself and and your close friends. Um, but one of the really nice things about, yeah, writing that aspect of the, of the book was feeling like I could kind of put a pin in that moment of my life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that something is that's, uh, you know, really beautiful about the novel and something that I think about a lot as well is um, is that sort of formative time in your 20s and you're defining yourself in relation to the people around you and particularly in relationship to to your to your parents and to your family and to what and to what they've experienced. Um, The character in your book, her mother falls pregnant very young Mm -hmm. with a with our central character and we come to the central character when she is at that same age that her mother fell pregnant with her and she's asking herself all of these kind of existential questions Mm -hmm. and all of these questions that are really muddied up with the stuff that we were talking about before as well, like this kind of self-ideation and, you know, this almost like mythic version of self or romantic Mm -hmm. version of self. Um, my questioning style very much today is to ramble and then go, so tell me what you think about that. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love it. I mean, I think that, you know, part of the coming of age novel, um, one of the sort of tropes or traditions of that is that you have a character who is trying to figure out their own identity as a separate entity of the world, separate from family, separate from other institutions. Um, And I do think of my narrator as someone who's like, very hungry for different models of how to live. Um, 
and Jude, her older boyfriend, offers her one, but I think it's even more pronounced with her relationships with women, like her mother, um, her you know best friend Bonnie, who she lives with in the share house, a friend of Jude's, an older woman called Maeve, who she develops a kind of fraught friendship with. Um, and I think that, yeah, I guess I was thinking about the idea of womanhood as being something that's learned, um, not something that's inherent. And her is kind of like, yeah, looking for different ways of how to live, which I think is part of your 20s as well. And with the storyline with her and her mother, I feel like, you know, there can be both sort of an attraction um, and a fear of replicating the patterns that you've seen in your own family. And I think that's something that she's kind of toggling between um, throughout the book. Yeah, absolutely. Madeline, we're running out of time, but I do really want to ask you um, if you could share some of your sort of inspirations behind the book, some of the things you were reading or listening to as you were writing it. Yeah, um, wow. I mean, I worked on the book for, you know, a period of years, so there were really so many things that um, inspired me along the way. And I'm I'm not always good at coming up with them off the top (laughs) of my head. But um, I was thinking a lot about love stories and what it means to write a love story. Um, When people would ask me what the book was about, I would often just say, well, it's a love story. And I think I was being a bit cheeky because people will, maybe there's an assumption that that doesn't necessarily mean you're writing a serious literary novel. Um, But I was looking for examples of that. And I could think of many like um, Margaret Duras, who you Mm. mentioned before, and The Lover, um, Cleanness by Garth Greenwell, another beautiful novel that combines like sensuality with the cerebral Um, and I was also thinking a lot about domestic life and different portraits of domestic life so The Children's Bark by Helen Garner was really important to me and really discovering her work I think quite late um, which I feel a little ashamed of but until I read her I really hadn't read that many Australian writers writing about urban domestic life Mm -hmm. um, in the kind of way that I grew up, you know, creative people living in share houses, having complicated relationships. Um, Even though she was writing about a slightly earlier time, like that was what my childhood felt like too. Um, Musician fathers. Mm. (laughs) So I really found a lot in the children's bark um, that helped me write about that kind of inner city Australian life. Absolutely. I feel like it is a small, perfect book. Mm -hmm. I once had the pleasure of um, working with Hilary McPhee, who was um, McPhee. Fee Gribble, Helen Garner's first publisher, and she described that book that way. And I was like, yeah, absolutely correct. Um, I feel like I felt echoes of um, Peggy Frew's work mm-hmm. in, in your novel as well, um, and maybe even uh, Laura McPhee Brown, who's another great local writer. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I was so excited um, about her new novel, which I haven't had a chance to read yet, but I really want to check it out. Oh, it's wonderful. You should. Yes. Yeah, I'll buy a copy while I'm here. Yes, yes. Um, And I suppose it also, you know, I I think that this novel does something wonderful in that it shows, you know, like Tim Winton's breath, but it shows that that women can be damaged and complicated Mm -hmm. and... I know, like that. Well, that men can be all of those things as well. You know that we both do. It sort of feels like a book written (laughs) for women that who maybe read Breath, who maybe read those novels and and felt like they were kind of a bit left out and a bit unseen. Totally. Um, That's so funny that you said that because I had the exact same conversation with one of my friends like via text the other day and she was like, it reminded me of Breath, but instead of, you know, the female character being like enigmatic and unknowable and so mysterious, like we're inside her consciousness mm. um, and she's looking at a man that way um, and kind of, you know, 
I did very much want to write a novel that felt centered on the female gaze, but we were laughing about it and I was like, yeah, it's Tim Winton for girls. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I said after a couple of glasses of wine the other night. (laughs) I was like, I'm happy with that. Let's corner that market for me. (laughs) Fantastic. You heard it here first. Tim Winton for girls. Um, Madeleine, it has been an absolute delight to have you on the show. Um, if you have liked what you've heard, and you absolutely should have, um, please do head down to Readings in Carlton, uh, where Madeleine is in conversation with Paul Delarosa, launching the book, talking about the book. You might even be able to pick yourself up a signed copy. Um, the event is free, but please do jump on the Readings website and sign up in advance so that they can buy enough wine. I am absolutely delighted to introduce our next guest, Jane Finemore, who is the Program Director at Queenscliff Literary Festival. Uh, Queenscliff Literary Festival, that's a hard word to say fast. Queenscliff Literary Festival is taking place over the next three weekends, uh, starting from this one, from the 12th and going through until the 28th of May. Welcome to the show, Jane. How are you? Oh, hi, Mel. Thank you so much for having me on. And I'm pretty well, a little anxious with the festival so close, but otherwise well. Uh, Jane, we were just talking on off air and you are a consummate professional. You've been into Triple Art several times. You've worked for 40 years or something like that with the most decorated authors. You brought Jonathan Franzen into the station not too long ago. Yeah, that's true. You have no reason to be nervous. Yeah, but I've <laughs> never been... I'm not. I'm a publicist by trade, so publicists are in the background, you know. So this is this is a novel experience for me. Yeah. Well, we're very very grateful for you being brave and jumping in. I totally understand as someone who has worked, you know, behind the scenes with a pen and paper for a long time as well. It's a new thing, but it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, the theme for the festival this year is time to think. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis for that theme? I'd actually love to, but I'm going to sound crazy. But I I was in (laughs) Bali last year and I was um, quite unwell after COVID and I went to this uh, local healer and amongst the many bits of advice he gave me, he said, you need to find the space between your thoughts. And I don't know about you, Mel, but I thought, well, that's completely impossible. Yeah. Um, But... I couldn't stop thinking about that concept, about just slowing down and stopping the busyness. And um, so I decided to theme this year, Time to Think, with a deliberate double meaning. Um, I believe, you know, in this time in history, we all need to take a big step back and have a good look at what we're doing in our society and in our lives. But I also think that we need to calm down, slow down. I like the idea of, um, I heard a very, very smart writer, Harry Sadler, uh, a great Melbourne writer, and he said he thinks walking pace is the best pace for thinking. And that also resonated with me. So, yeah, that's where it came from. I believe I've seen him uh, speak before at a writer's festival and he said it's walking is in between doing something and nothing and it's the perfect pace at which to think, um, which I've never forgotten it. it yeah. yeah. He's a very – he's a philosopher. And uh, so, yeah, that's where it came from. And also, um, I don't, I'm don't. i sure a lot of your listeners, if they're interested in the book world, will know how many uh, literary festivals are on around the country in May and uh, 
and uh, well, really over this six-week period. Mm. Um, and we're just a little regional festival in Queenscliff on the beautiful Ballerine. And I wanted us to be different, like have a point of difference. So uh, the schedule and the program is very spaced out. We don't have any overlapping sessions. We have gaps between the sessions. So you can have a coffee or a wine and have a talk about what you've just listened to, what maybe you've learned. So it doesn't rush in one ear and out the other. Yeah, a bit of time to think. Yes. Ah, yeah, mm. you got it. Yeah, I got it, I got it. Um, yes. Now, I wanted to ask you about this because it seems that writers' festivals, they are, they're all happening at this time and it seems like there's an increasing appetite in regional areas, particularly in Victoria, but all over, to host these festivals. And I thought you were really well placed to to answer, you know, what you think it is about having these festivals and talking about books and sharing stories that builds a community, you know? Well, yeah, it's a good question. Um, the QLF has been running for nine years mm. and when it first started, it was small mm. and they, they held it in all little uh, spaces around Queenscliff. Uh, we now need the town hall, which mm. holds 330. We don't always have 330 in the room, but um, what we've discovered is a huge appetite for engagement. Um, and you might think, if you're listening to this, that it's just retired people with time on their hands. Absolutely not the case. Uh, we're getting people from all age groups, um, and they are gen- genuinely want to engage with each other. So the thing about Queenscliff is through the COVID period, uh, I know a lot of um, live events um, pivoted to Zoom. We just couldn't do that. That's mm. not what our audience want. They want to be in a room with other people and uh, so, and I love that about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, when I think about Queenscliff, central in my mind is, you know, not only the beautiful coastal landscape, but that fantastic bookshop. I think that the Queenscliff bookshop is really one of the best and it's it's a dream to walk in there and I always spend way too much money and get all these excellent recommendations. Um, so it makes perfect sense that there would be... Um, a thriving book scene happening around there with with so many of you who are so passionate about books sort of living there and and bringing people down. Oh, look, it's the bookshop is extraordinary. It's uh, owned by Matt and Jane. Jane Tuttle is an author herself and in very exciting news is on the program this weekend on Saturday and she will be interviewed by Helen Garner about her the first two books in her Paris trilogy. Um Paris or Die and totally lost the other one, but it will come back. And um, Jane will also, the following weekend, be interviewing Sophie Cunningham about her novel, uh, This Devastating Fever. And Jane, when I sort of showed Jane the program and said, what would you like to to do? Because I just think she's fabulous um she just said oh my god Sophie Cunningham's book I devoured that book I've hand sold it to a million people please please let me do that one and I just love the kind of the excitement the way the bookshop generates this interest in literature everything about it is kind of feel good yeah that's a wonderful thing so tell us I mean you've done this wonderful thing where you've spaced out the program so that people can people can go to everything but what what are you really anticipating like what is what 
when you look at the program, what are you like, I can't wait for that? What are they going to say? What are they going to talk about? Yeah, interesting. One of the ones we've got um, on is called, is, it's about saving our culture. Um, and it's a, it, the, the premise is that big corporations are giving profits to shareholders and themselves and not to creatives. Now, we all know this. It's not news. Um, Rebecca Giblin is a Melbourne academic, and she wrote a book with Cory Doctorow, the American um, economist, and they've got... It's quite uh, an academic read, but they've got some great ideas about what we can do, all of us, just as consumers, to try and give some of that power and money back to the creatives. So I'm talking about the kind of... Amazon, Spotify, you guys know what I'm talking about, how they just funnel off any profits. Um, I recently heard that, uh, you know, Disney has bought the Fox Studios in Sydney and you're only allowed to make Disney uh, product, uh, films and TV there. So it, I'm really interested in what we can do as consumers to try and just draw that back a little. Very interested to find out what they've got to say. And one of our free events um, is called The Road We All Travel, and it's about a good death. Um, I've recently, you know, had to witness a few people have you die and I thought there's got to be better ways to, to do this. And so we've got a panel of experts just to talk about ways that you can make those last days peaceful, maybe even joyous. Wow, that sounds extraordinary. And absolutely, I mean, I feel like that's the kind of, that's the kind of topic that you would want you would want writers and thinkers and philosophers to tackle, you know. I, I, yeah, um, that sounds gorgeous. Thank you. Um, can you tell us about the festival and about this, you know, the way that you've kind of conceived of it? Um, you mentioned previously that you worked for a very long time in book publicity. Can you tell us about this journey from, from working kind of behind the scenes with authors to now being a programmer? Yeah, of course. Well, that came about by accident, like all things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I, I was mainly in Sydney for mm. my career, but I came back to live in Melbourne a few years ago. And I don't know, I was sort of freelancing and um, not loving it. Mm. And I actually saw the ad for the program director in... Um, in the weekly book news, which if you're in the publishing world, you'll know is is the bit of the Bible. And I thought, I wonder if I could do that. So I got the job and then I had to figure out how to do it. <laughs> but it because in my um, publishing career, I had always been the festival coordinator at all the big publishers that I'd worked with. I've been to every writers' festival in Australia like a bazillion times. Mm. I've been to writers' festivals overseas. I, it was I realised that I actually knew it all. I just hadn't looked at it from the other side. And it's super fun, by the way. It's so fun. It's really creative. You get to deal with some extraordinary people. Have to keep up with all the latest books. I've discovered in the last five years I've been doing this job a real love for nonfiction. Mm. Um, which before I, I always was a fiction reader, 
Um, so that's how it happened. Yeah, wow, fantastic. Well, we're very excited about the Queenscliff Literary Festival. It starts this weekend and it takes a leisurely pace over three weekends. So it starts on the 12th and it finishes on the 28th. If you're after any more information, please do visit their website, which is queenscliffliteraryfestival.com.au. It has been an absolute delight to have you in the studio with us, Jane. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Val. It's been great to be here. Um, it's just about time for me to say goodbye, unfortunately. Uh, thank you so much to my guests this week. Thank you to Jane and thank you as well to Madeleine Lucas, who was on earlier talking about her beautiful book, Thirst for Salt, which is launching tonight at Readings Carlton. And please do tune in to Lit Glit next week because I have got the magnificent, cheeky, spooky delightful Bora Chung who'll be talking about her short story collection which I'm certainly looking forward to. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.